Well, today's scripture reading is found in Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 through 8, 17 to 22, 26 through 34, and chapters 50, verses 15 through 21. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Then they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand or restore him to his father. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What happens to a dream deferred? Those six words are amongst the most powerful and most famous from 20th century American poetry. Those are the words penned by the great African-American poet 
and representative really of uh, the Harlem Renaissance in his poem entitled Harlem that was published in 1951. And it's a very short poem that all turns on that question. What happens to a dream deferred? And the various answers that are suggested by Hughes take the form of questions, but they all culminate with these final haunting words. Or does it explode? Now, nowhere does Hughes say explicitly, I mean, this is poetry after all, uh, what dream he is referring to. Is this the American dream? A picket fence, an apple pie. Is this a dream of equal opportunity for his people? Is this the more personal and quotidian hopes and dreams that we all have for ourselves? Or is this more akin to Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream of an America of equal standing and equal dignity and equal freedom for all citizens, regardless of their color? Our country is nothing if not a land of dreams and of dreamers. But what happens to those dreams when they're indefinitely and seemingly perpetually deferred. And not only can we ask what happens to those dreams, what happens to the dreams that we dream when they're deferred, but what happens to those dreamers? Because there are those who think that the best way to kill the dream is to kill the dreamer. That's what Joseph's brothers thought when they saw him coming and they conspired amongst themselves saying, here comes the dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him. Or in the incomparable words of the King James Version, Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him, and we shall see what becomes of his dreams. And those same words from the the King James Version of Genesis chapter 37, those same words are inscribed on a plaque that stands at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, where on the evening of April 4th, 1968, James Earl Ray felled Dr. Martin Luther King with a single shot because in his hatred he wanted to kill the dream. And so he said, I'm going to kill the dreamer. And that he did, and he felled the dreamer at the tender age of 39. So he killed the dreamer, but did he kill the dream? I don't think so, but Let's pivot to our passage this morning because I want us to understand what was the dream that made Joseph's brothers hate him so much? So we're going to look at the dream and its fulfillment, what the promise of the dream is, and and what does its fulfillment surprisingly look like. So first, the dream, or we we, we should say more appropriately, the dreams of Joseph. But just to say that what we're entering into now, and this is a a rhythm, a cycle we've been in actually the last, this is the fourth year that we'll be doing it, kind of during the school year. We take, uh, we step into the narrative lectionary, and that provides us with a a, a plan, a path forward for our our reading and our preaching over the course of of the school year. And so what the narrative lectionary does is it gives us um, a four-year cycle where we get some of the, you know, highlights of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We get a gospel every year, and we get some of the most important stories and narratives in the Old Testament. And so it helps us to not just be getting the Bible in little, you know, bite-sized chunks, um, but to capture some of that grand narrative of Scripture and see how it relates um, together. And actually, uh, you get none of the Joseph story in more traditional lectionaries, which is a shame. 
And though even though we're spending, you could do a whole series on the life of Joseph. I mean, this is the longest um, narrative in the book of, of Genesis, and it it's truly stands as a uh, one of the greatest and most wonderfully crafted, uh, you know, accomplishments in all of human literature, I would argue. The story of Joseph is this incredible story, his saga, as it's called, that comprises Genesis 39, uh, 37, sorry, um, to 50. And it's, it's, it's this incredible story um, it, where we learn a lesson that we cannot, we see a lesson that we cannot learn over much, is that God works through broken people, and broken families to achieve his purposes. And, 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 and nowhere is this more clear than in the story of Joseph and how that story begins with these words, you know, now Israel, and so that's another name for Jacob. Uh, now Israel, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons and made him a robe of many colors. And so that beginning right there suggests that there's going to be a lot of problems ahead because as any parent uh, can tell you, you know, you have no favorites. You love all your children equally, even if not in the same way. And so here we have daddy's favorite getting, um, getting this robe of many colors, this amazing technicolor dream coat, as Andrew Lloyd Webber called it. And, and, and so what this robe means, you have to remember that, you know, back in the ancient world, now we have the mass production of clothes, and this is a modern phenomenon. And, and, and so in the ancient world, every single garment was bespoke. It was handmade. It was handcrafted. It was tailored, uh, tailored to wear. And so this coat of, of many colors or whatever it is, this long coat, this, this ornamented coat, it, it was a coat that, saw that, that, that said to, 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 to Joseph that his father saw him as royalty, that he really was loved, that he really was the golden child, that he really was his father's favorite, even though he was practically the youngest. And so it's easy to understand. I mean, just any kind of parental favoritism, it's easy to understand why that would engender resentment bitterness, even hatred. But what's harder to understand is how does that fester then into a homicidal plot on behalf of his brothers? And to understand that, we got to look at the dreams. And we learn in Joseph's story later on that, that not only is Joseph a dreamer, as we see in this chapter, but he's also, and his life is spared by the fact that he is an interpreter of dreams. And he presents his family, so he can interpret dreams, he can understand them, he can speak to their deeper meaning and significance. But he presents his dreams to his family without any interpretation. He doesn't spell out what this means. Now, maybe it's too obvious, but, but he never explains it to them. He leaves interpretation to those who are hearing it. And so in the first dream, it's about the binding of sheaves. And he says, you know, his brother sees, he says, your sheaves bowed down to my sheaf. And so they interpreted that dream as meaning that Joseph was to rule over them. And because of that, the text says, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. In our reading today, we, we, we skipped the second dream, but this was a dream where the sun, the moon, and the stars, so symbolizing his father and his mother and his, and his 11 brothers bowing down to him. And you can imagine how well that second dream went over. Not, not well. And so Joseph's brothers hate him because they see that Joseph is setting himself up as he's going to be the heir. He's going to be the favorite one. He's going to be the one who gets control of all of his father's wealth at their expense. They see that his future is going to be a good future, and their future is going to be a deprived future. And so what can they do to keep this dream from coming to fulfillment? They've got to kill the dream 
by killing the dreamer. But they didn't understand the dream. And I don't think the dreamer, I don't think Joseph actually understood the meaning and significance at this point of the dream either. Right? These dreams, they were about Joseph's greatness. I mean, there's no mistaking that. They are that God had chosen. They, God had chosen Joseph to play an incredibly important, significant role in God's plans. And that he was going to have a great future. But what the brothers misunderstood, and I think Joseph couldn't have understood at this point, was what the true meaning of greatness is in the economy of God, in the way that God works. When they thought of greatness, they thought of it, it, it was something that came at their expense. They thought that Joseph's exaltation, it was going to mean their humiliation. They were thinking in terms of scarcity and competition. They were thinking of life as this zero-sum game. And that's so often how the world works, foolishly. We, we, we think in terms of, of zero-sum. We think that if, if, if someone prospers, it's always got to be at someone else's expense. That's how we think. That's how the world thinks. But what they don't understand is that's not how God works. Greatness in service of God. Whenever we think of greatness in, in, in the kingdom of God, it's that the one is exalted for the sake of the whole. God chooses Abraham. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. God chooses Abraham for greatness. We can say, that's not fair. What about all the other nations of the world? But God doesn't choose Abraham so that all the nations of the world will be beneath him, but that what all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. That's how God always works. God elevates the one in order to elevate all. Jesus Christ, he was exalted not at our expense, but on our behalf. He was lifted up, not so that we could serve him, but so that in order he could save us. That same principle, it's throughout Scripture, and we see it at play right here. But the problem is that in this moment, no one can see it. And what they don't understand and that what doesn't become clear until the story unfolds a bit further is that God chose to exalt Joseph, to, to lift him up in order to keep the dream, in order to keep the promise that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob alive. Because what happens in Joseph's story after he has, you know, sold into uh, slavery and, and, and he reaches really the depths of, of, of the human experience is that he rises up from desperation and from slavery to become the prime minister of Egypt. And it's because he's in that role and because he can interpret dreams, he sees that this terrible famine is coming. And so he formulates a national policy where they're going to store enough grain so that Egypt will be able to withstand these years of famine. And it's only through his strategic planning and through his position in the government that his 10 brothers and, you know, who hated him so much and his father are able to, to, to survive. And they don't die of starvation. They don't perish in this famine. And so this dream of greatness, these dreams of greatness, they aren't for the sake of the dreamer, but for the sake of the many. And Joseph doesn't fully understand the meaning of his dream until we get to the end of the story. And he says to his brothers who are afraid, okay, now Jacob is dead. And so Joseph was being nice to us while our father was alive, but now he's dead. So Joseph is going to get, you know, revenge is a dish that is best served cold. So now Joseph can really do to us what he wants to. And they're terrified. They're afraid. And so finally, at the end of the story, finally, when the brothers think, okay, now is the moment where Joseph is going to get his revenge on us because we did evil to him. 
Joseph says to them these great words. I mean, some of the greatest words in, in all of Scripture. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so the dream then, it's about life for the many. It's about flourishing for the many. It's about salvation for the many. Because when we look at the end of this passage, where we go from Genesis 37, we skip everything, we get to Genesis 50. Here, finally, we think this dream is being fulfilled. This is when the sheaves are going to bow down. Joseph's brothers, they throw themselves down. They bow down at Joseph's feet. And they're begging for mercy. Joseph is finally in this position he dreamed about as a young boy where he had complete and total power over his brothers. Their lives are literally in his hands. But the surprising moment of fulfillment of this dream is that right when they treat Joseph as if he's ruling over them, right when they say, behold, we are your servants, and this Hebrew word, it also means slaves. They say, we're your literal slaves. We're not even your brothers anymore. It's right at that moment that Joseph says, and he fulfills the dream by saying this, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? The dream is actually fulfilled when Joseph rejects any place of authority over them and places himself on equal footing with his treacherous brothers under the sovereignty of God. God is God. Joseph is not. And so they all bow down. All these brothers are equal before God. And thus the dream is fulfilled when they all realize that true greatness is measured in sacrifice and service on behalf of others. When we are sacrificing and we are serving God, that is when we, like Joseph, are truly living the dream. And we're living this dream also when we are pursuing reconciliation, the kind of reconciliation that we see in the story of Joseph, the kind of reconciliation that is fraught and is dangerous because there's no denying the fact that what his brothers did was wrong. It was condemnable. And they have to own up to that. But but reconciliation is costly. But that's the dream, which Paul tells the the church in 2 Corinthians. He says, God was in Christ doing what? Reconciling the world to himself. That's the dream. And then he says, and we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling people to God, the, the, the vertical dimension, but also reconciling people to each other. That's the horizontal dimension of reconciliation. And reconciliation is hard, and it's always a miracle. It's always an act of God. And it is something that is so elusive that even talking about it feels like we're talking about a dream. And is that dream dead? Now, this fall in, in our life groups, we're reading the book, One Blood by John Perkins. And, and it's all about biblical reconciliation. Perkins is driving this message home. We have been given the message of reconciliation. And surprisingly, he says, I'm not talking about racial reconciliation. Though in a country like America, recon- reconciliation between groups of people uh, who, who have been treated uh, 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 differently according to the made-up category of race, he's like, that's going to be an important part of reconciliation. But he says this is biblical reconciliation because it's a reconciliation that goes beyond, that that tries to move beyond uh, the lie that is at the heart of so much of our national life. And the lie, that's the lie of of race. And it's the lie that um, it was created as a category. The only reason it was created was to justify the double standard. 
Why can we treat one group of people? Why does one group of people get all these rights and privileges and another group of people, why are they denied them? We have to create something to justify the double standard. And that something that was created was the very concept of race. One group is meant to rule, one group is meant to serve. And as that great icon of the American left, Adolf Reed, who is a professor of political science at, uh, at uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania, as he has said, the foundational belief of racism isn't that one race is superior to another. We think that. He says, no, 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 it's actually much deeper and more insidious than that. It's that race is real. It's a real category, an objective truth, as opposed to a subjective construction upon reality that we have created to justify the double standard. And so Perkins rejects that lie. And so I'm excited that we, as a church, we're getting to learn from Perkins about how the dream of reconciliation, that dream that we see right here in Joseph's story, that dream that was deferred in the poem of Langston Hughes and and proclaimed with such power by Dr. King is still alive today. And it's there for us to dream to and to, to pursue. And just like Joseph living that dream, it entails great service and great sacrifice and great cost and even great suffering. And many of us are just waking up to that reality right now, but thanks God, thanks be to God, it is not too late. And there is a dream that will not die. And I close with these words from another poem actually by Langston Hughes, where he says, Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for when dreams go, life is a barren field frozen with snow. So hold fast to God's dreams for this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise for how you work through incredibly complicated and difficult and broken people to bring about beautiful things in this world. And God, I pray too that in those places in our life right now where we are most broken, you would help us to see your beauty and where you are at work. And God, where you are calling us to a difficult and a costly reconciliation, Lord God, give us uh, the wisdom and the courage uh, to experience the, the, the sacrifice and the suffering that that will entail. But Lord, we pray in all things that we would see that ultimately it is about life, abundant life for many. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.